VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 249 at the Bowery Boys. Madam C.J. Walker, Harlem's hair care millionaire. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Happy 2018, Tom. Happy 2018 to you, Greg, and to you, our listeners. And we're going to start this year in a remarkable way with a remarkable lady, or rather, actually, two remarkable ladies. Women that not only changed the lives of African Americans in the United States in the 20th century, but made an indelible mark on New York City history. This is the story of Madam C.J. Walker and her daughter, Alelia Walker. Madam C.J. Walker, who was born Sarah Breedlove, would become world famous as Madam C.J. Walker, and her daughter Alelia would play an important role in running this wildly successful hair care company and play a part in the Harlem Renaissance. Madam Walker was the first self-made female millionaire in the United States, a fact that is extraordinary when you consider the fact that she was an African-American born to former slaves in Louisiana in the 1860s. Today, we'll be looking at her surprising and inspirational story. Uh, We'll be talking about how she rose from a washerwoman to leading a women's hair care and beauty business that was employing, at its peak, more than 20,000 women. And she did it all in the face of incredible adversity, racism, and sexism. Now, some of you may know that Tom and I love to tackle these great biographies of famous Americans when their stories intersect with the history of New York City. That's what we are, after all. And, And in this case, the story of these two women intersects with the birth of Harlem as the American black mecca of the 20th century. It's really, this story is incredible because it takes us from the deep south after the Civil War to the Midwest and then to Harlem in the 1910s, and later into one of the ritziest suburbs lining the Hudson River just north of the city. So join us as we take a look at the remarkable life of Madam C.J. Walker and her daughter, Alelia. Just a quick note before we get started, you know, we tackle a lot of subjects on this show, all kinds of stories uh, that touch and make up the history of New York City. 
This is one of those stories, and it's an amazing rags-to-riches success story, like several others that we've told on the show, you know, because we bring um, Madame Walker and her daughter, Lelia, uh, they, they would move to New York at the height of her career and play an important part in the Harlem Renaissance. So it is a story of business success, and the beauty business in particular, much like the episode we did last year on the beauty bosses yeah. of Fifth Avenue. That's the story of Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein. Right. And makes a great companion to this show, I think. A great parallel. Right. A parallel because this story takes place very far from Fifth Avenue. And that's because the protagonists of this story were African-American. This story touches upon subjects that we, as white men, can only imagine right? Like life-threatening racism and sexism. And we'd like to say that a hundred years later, everything has changed. But obviously, as you'll see later in the story, some of the events that we're about to talk about could have been plucked from today's headlines. So it seems even more important than ever for us to study the remarkable life of this woman. So introduce us to Madam Walker, or should I say Sarah Breedlove? Yes, because she was obviously not born Madam. That would be an ambitious name. <laughs> no, Sarah was born on December 23rd, 1867, which was just almost exactly 150 years ago from right now. She was born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana. She was the daughter of Owen and Minerva Breedlove, uh, who had been slaves on that plantation before the Civil War. And then after the war, they were sharecroppers. So she grew up in this very humble place, in this cabin, really. And by the time she turned seven, both of her parents had died, and Sarah had found work in a nearby cotton field. When she was only 14 years old, she married a man named Moses McWilliams. And four years later, they had a daughter in 1885, who they named Lelia. Uh, Lelia would later go by Alelia. But in 1887, two years after having her daughter, her husband Moses died, which led Sarah and Lelia to move off to St. Louis, where she had brothers living and working as barbers. And there she found a job to support her small family by working as a laundress and earned just, you know, between a dollar and a dollar fifty a day. She also, in St. Louis, married a second husband named John Davis in 1894. So very humble origins, just making ends meet here. How is she introduced to the world of hair care? Well, in the 1890s, when she was in her late 20s or early 30s, she started having trouble with her hair. She was losing her hair, in fact. And that was not really terribly surprising or unusual, given the hygiene you know, uh, practices of the day. Because people simply weren't washing their hair as often as they do today and sometimes would go weeks or even months between hair washes. And even worse, when they did wash their hair, a lot of the soaps that they were using contained lye, uh, which only aggravated their scalps more and made the situation even worse, which led to intense dandruff and infected scalps, etc. And this was happening to thousands of men and women across the country because of these sort of common practices. Well, and, and you can imagine that conditions were even worse in poorer and more rural areas where they didn't even have running water. And the and these infections would actually cause baldness because it was the the intense dandruff was actually affecting the ability of the hair to grow at all. 
However, there were products on the market that were available, um, you know, at the drugstore or via door-to-door salesmen. And in an effort to treat this terrible condition, she did test out some of these products, including a hair conditioner that was made by Annie Turnbow Malone, who was another African-American entrepreneur who preceded Sarah into this field. So she got a bit of inspiration from Malone's products and treatments? Well, that's not a simple question to answer because fact and fiction can sometimes be a little bit difficult to separate, especially as Madam C.J. Walker would, you know, learn to market herself Mm -hmm. very effectively and spin her own tale. According to an article that was published decades later in the New York Times, quote, I was at my tub one morning with a heavy wash before me. As I bent over the washboard and looked at my arms buried in soap suds, I said to myself, what are you going to do when you grow old and your back gets stiff? Who is going to take care of your little girl? This sent me to thinking, but I couldn't see how I, a poor washerwoman, was going to better my condition. Now comes the part of the story that sounds strange, but it is the absolute truth. One night I had a dream, and something told me to start in the business in which I am now engaged. This I did, and I went to Denver, Colorado, and I began my business career on a capital of $1.25. So like all great inspiration, she gets this idea from her dreams. She didn't mention, however, that by that point she had also started selling Annie Malone's hair products. Uh, right around the time of the St. Louis World's Fair of 1904. Right, so she worked with Malone now, selling her products. So she was a sales agent. And then in 1905, the next year, uh, she moved to Denver, probably still selling Malone's product. And there in Denver, she met and married her third husband, Charles Joseph Walker. Uh, she had divorced Davis, her second husband, two years before back in St. Louis. Now, Walker, Charles Joseph Walker was a journalist and he would end up being her business partner and and helped her with her marketing and advertising strategies. You know, he knew the business. And for example, instead of just going by the name Mrs. Charles Walker, she added a little more marketing oomph to it and gussied up her name to Madam C.J. Walker. Well, yeah, I mean, it automatically sounds more sophisticated, worldly. European even? (laughs) Absolutely. And French. You know, we talked (laughs) about in the Beauty Bosses show how things that were French in the beauty market sold better. Mm -hmm. So what did she sell? What was the very first product? Well, her first and what would be her biggest product were tins of a product called Madame Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower. It was a treatment for the scalp. Uh, It used sulfur to heal the scalp and to help promote hair growth, disguised heavily with perfumes. And notably, Greg, she would use on her packaging her own image, her own likeness to promote her product. She didn't use, like other beauty products sold to African-American women at the time, she didn't use a white model who she tinted darker for, for the product. She used herself. And this image is actually the most famous photograph of Madam C.J. Walker today, the one that people can conjure in their head. This is actually the, this was actually on the label and in the advertising. Right. There's a very iconic advertisement from 1907 that shows a before and after shots of her. You're referring to that one. Mm -hmm. She's in the middle with very short hair and then on both sides with very long, luxurious hair cascading down to her shoulders. So she's in Denver. She has 
created this new product for hair. To use our previous example of Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden, mm-hmm. did she train agents? Did she like make deals with sh- with shops? Well, eventually, but at the beginning, she started small. She was going door to door herself through African American neighborhoods while building the company. She wrote a few years later in a booklet, quote, After one year's use on myself and others, I became so thoroughly convinced of its merits that I decided to travel and place it within the reach of the thousands whom I knew were in need of it. So she and her husband, Charles, traveled through the South, where 90% of the country's black population still lived at the time, visiting African-American churches, uh, lodge halls, anywhere else where she could demonstrate her hair product. And meanwhile, her daughter, Lelia, ran the business back in Denver before they all moved the business to Pittsburgh in 1908, where they opened up Lelia College, which was designed to train salon workers, or as she called them, hair culturalists. So even at this early date, she's getting her daughter into the act. And basically, it's a mother-daughter team that's sort of running this company already. And starting in 1908 to train other people to use her product and to develop an entire regimen that would be used. So various ointments and creams and pomades in conjunction with special hot irons. All of this just three years after she started the company. And in 1910, they made the big move to Indianapolis. And there she bought the grandest house in the African-American neighborhood in Indianapolis And it was out of her house where she was living that she was also, at the beginning at least, producing her products and training workers and running a salon. And it was really here in Indianapolis where her business blossomed and she became one of the most well-known African-American women in the United States as the head of a company that she created herself. And she also became so widely known because of her advertisements. She started advertising far and wide in in African-American newspapers around the country and really building up a thriving mail-order business. And there's a huge beauty wave that's happening around this period anyway for all women in the United States. So she is just one component of this larger trend. Although a large component, really, because she would start to hire sales agents and train them to go door to door around the region, but then around the country. At its height, she was employing more than 20,000 agents. So she suddenly developed herself a real position of power here, not just in Indianapolis, but uh, throughout the country. And uh, it was a position that she used for philanthropic purposes as well. And that got her national attention. For example, in 1911, she donated $1,000, which was a large amount back in 1911, for the construction of a YMCA for African Americans in Indianapolis. Again, a large sum of money, but especially notable because it came from an African American woman. The next year, in 1912, she attended the annual gathering of the National Negro Business League, where President Booker T. Washington denied her request to speak to the group. And, you know, she repeatedly made overtures. She tried to talk to other people at the convention about getting on the platform, getting up on the stage to be able to talk to the crowd. And he denied it because she was a woman. Right. Finally, at the end of the conference, she stood in the audience and addressed him directly. 
And here we're going to play a clip of Madam's great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, author of the 2001 book On Her Own Ground. Ms. Bundles, here speaking at the Charles Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit in 2001, explains what happened next when her great-great-grandmother stood on the floor of the convention in 1912. As the final banker was making his remarks, Madam C.J. Walker stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the cook kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. I have built my own factory on my own ground. How did Booker T. Washington react? He reacted by inviting her back the next year as a keynote speaker. It pays to stand up and be heard. And meanwhile, the next year, she was expanding outside the United States to the Caribbean, to Central America, really building an empire. And also building a fortune, a fortune which I should just note, was also made greater by the fact that she was investing in real estate because she invested in land and property all over the country, and that also would pay off handsomely. Well, as early as 1912, her daughter, Lelia, began looking at New York as a possible base of operation and as a home. The following year, She and her mother purchased property in New York at 108 West 136th Street in the neighborhood of Harlem. Now, Lelia would eventually move here and turn it into the East Coast base of operations for the Madam C.J. Walker Company. In 1915, just a couple years later, they would buy the brownstone next door at 110 West 136th Street. The two were then combined with a brand new front designed to, to make it look like one gigantic building. Madam would eventually move here to live in 1916. This would not only be her home and office, but would become a salon training school as well. So 1916, and she's arriving on 136th Street mm-hmm. in Harlem. This is a real mecca for African-American life at the time. It actually is not necessarily known as that quite yet in 1916. I'm going to give us a tour of the headquarters here. Don't panic. We're going to do one of our legendary walkthroughs. But I thought I would take a few moments to look at the backdrop of the Walker's decision to move here. They weren't just moving to a prominent black neighborhood. Their move in, in a very small way helped to actually make it prominent and thus in a, in a certain way you know especially because they have this huge company on their shoulders here mm-hmm. they could even be considered pioneers of sorts but wait a second so if they were a little ahead of the game here can you just take us back a decade or 15 years and tell us how harlem had changed up sure. to this point we'll go back even a little further to the year 1900 Harlem, the neighborhood of Harlem, was a thriving residential and commercial outpost built up by white immigrant communities, namely Germans, Eastern European Jewish, and Italians. 
You even had some areas of great residential wealth, like rows of extremely fine houses, such as Old Astor Row on West 130th Street. And on top of that, you had many, many fine hotels that catered exclusively to white customers, including one hotel that would open a decade later called the Hotel Teresa on West 125th Street. And just two shows ago, we were talking about Oscar Hammerstein, who was building luxurious theaters yeah. up in Harlem as well. Yeah, here on 125th, it was beer halls, burlesque, opera houses, theaters, all sorts of things. However, Harlem was not ultimately defined as a hallmark of success for some of these communities. And as a result, many of the people who lived here promptly moved out to assimilate into kind of mainstream New York American white culture that was happening downtown. Of course, African Americans faced a very different crisis. There was no way they were going to assimilate in quite the same way. Right, but by by 1900, where was the largest black community in New York living? Well, I have a, a podcast from 2016 on that called Before Harlem, Forgotten Black Communities, if you want to check that out for more information. But essentially, it was neighborhoods like Little Africa, which is south of Washington Square Park. San Juan Hill was another, was another area, which was around the area of today's Lincoln Center, Hell's Kitchen. But these neighborhoods had poor quality of housing. And on top of that, black residents experienced discrimination on every single corner in all aspects of life in these different places. And then, I mean, you're, we're talking about like 1905, 40 years after the end of, civil, of the Civil War, you actually had self-made black businessmen and women who were looking for safe and reasonable places to live. And these neighborhoods did not provide that. A real revolution came around 1904 with a, an African-American man named Philip Payton, who was a custodian at a white real estate company, and then decided, well, I'm going to get into this game. I'm gonna... So he ended up buying property and rented exclusively to black customers. And where was that? Can I, can I assume that these properties were in Harlem? That's right. Payton's first properties that he purchased were here in Harlem, and his company, Afro-American Realty, would be a thriving success and, of course, inspire other realtors to come up here and purchase housing stock expressly for middle and upper class African Americans. A few years later then, downtown churches and other kinds of businesses started to move up to Harlem. Like, this is where the black population of New York City was collecting and would soon be the largest black neighborhood in New York. In the 19-teens. In, in the 19-teens. Then, with this as kind of a foundation, by the 1920s, this would be known as America's Great Black Mecca, inspiring political and social groups, and of course, a cultural revolution that we know as the, the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance. And that's during the 1920s. Madam Walker arrives in 1916, but this transition that takes place in the in the teens, mm -hmm. I'm assuming that that wasn't just a smooth transition. No, I mean, not at all. There was a great conflict, especially during this decade. By 1914, about 40% of the private housing and 10% of the tenements were owned by African Americans. 
However, the neighborhood, which was still largely white, these various immigrant communities, were pushing back hard against this change. Most businesses were slow and quite resistant to these changes. The aforementioned Hotel Teresa, for instance. Right. Which, you know, it's to me, it's like 125th Street. It's in the heart of Harlem. It refused black patrons until 1940. Many of the white residents tried to change the tide, opening racist residential organizations with such unsubtle names as the Anglo-Saxon Realty. Um, They pushed white-only rules into neighborhoods and tried to discourage more African-Americans from moving up to this neighborhood. Now, I'd like to read a quote from the New York Times that was published in 1914 and a quote that we actually used in our book, Tom. Under the ominous headline in the New York Times, Harlem owners to save property values by segregating and uplifting Negroes. Quote, for a starter, the white people have formed an incorporated association which will have a capital of $500,000 to be used for defensive purposes. Their next step will be to force out Negroes from streets where only a few families have settled and gradually to work into the heart of the Negro belt, reclaiming so far as possible the principal streets and avenues now occupied by blacks up to 135th Street. Wow, that is that's horrifying and strange to read that just reported as a news piece. Yeah. It is into this environment that the walkers decide to place their home and business here. This is not so much about staking out a nice house in a nice area. This is rich black women saying, not only are we going to build ourselves a fine home in this contentious area, We're going to open that home to other black women because it's going to be a salon on the edge of this area that you want us to leave. And do you know what we're going to do with these women? We're going to make them look beautiful. Wow. So what was it like inside this building? What happened inside? Yeah. So let's go inside to 108-110 West 136th Street. Take us on a tour. It was designed by a man named Vertner Tandy, who was the first black architect registered in New York State. He studied at Tuskegee and was a graduate of Cornell. He designed for them a Georgian-style red brick limestone home. The walkers would live on the upper three floors and entertain and you know spend their time here. Alelia lived here more often than Madam, who was often traveling. But the ground floor would be home to the Walker Hair Parlor. Then, in the basement, would be the Lelia College of Beauty Culture, a training school for agents from around the country who would come here to take a six-week training course on how to use her products and become great stylists, culturalists. I think it's so cool how throughout their career, from the very beginning, they were sharing their living space with <laughs> yeah. the manufacturing center and training area. Like their personal lives were intertwined with their professional ones. Even now here at the really height of their company's success in the teens, this would be an office, I guess, in New York. Although the main operating plant and factory was still back in yeah, Indianapolis. Right, right. So they were all over the country. Um, Tom, pictures of this reception room are amazing. It featured a gracious seating area, cabinets full of Madam Walker's products, and an office area cordoned off by a velvet rope. Um, So Lelia was in charge of the renovations of this particular building. And so when 
her mom came to finally kind of review them, the whole thing took her breath away. As Madam described in a letter, quote, It is impossible for me to describe it to you. It beats anything I have seen anywhere, even in the best hair salons of the whites. The decorators said that of all the work they have done here in that line, there is nothing equal to it, not even on Fifth Avenue. Take that, Arden and Rubenstein. <laughs> uh, was was this salon also a success? A huge success. It brought the walkers greater prominence, A obviously a new slate of customers, the thousands of women who lived in New York City, and into contact with large numbers of African Americans who had money. This also allowed both mother and daughter into the black aristocracy of Harlem that was forming around this time. Madden would end up using her money and influence for good, promoting causes for the good of other African Americans. So around the dinner table here at 136th Street, she would have meetings, dinner parties with black business leaders here in New York to discuss ways of how to use their place in society to combat the terrifying new wave of prejudice that was now forming in the United States. Because things now in the 1910s were actually becoming more dangerous for African-Americans, especially as they were becoming more prominent. In 1915, with the film Birth of a Nation, which became the biggest movie of its day, re-energized a dormant Ku Klux Klan. And throughout the South and in other areas of the United States, there were a new wave of lynchings against African Americans. And in fact, in June of 1917, more than three dozen African American men were murdered by a white mob in East St. Louis, Illinois. East St. Louis, across the water from where she once lived. Madam Walker would donate $5,000 or to adjust for $2,017, that's over $100,000 to the NAACP's anti-lynching fund. She would also be involved in a rather extraordinary protest, which took place in the summer of 1917, a silent parade, hundreds of African-Americans marching down Fifth Avenue to create awareness and to express their anger silently down Fifth Avenue um, at this at this spate of horrible attacks that were happening throughout the country. All of this with a backdrop of World War One. Walker actually knew a great many of the men, the African-American men who served in the 369th Infantry Regiment. That was the group of African-American soldiers who served for the French Army because they were not allowed to serve for the American military. In fact, when the regiment actually set out to sea to head towards the conflict, they even had a sort of a farewell party here at the Salon. She was also involved in ceremonies when the regiments returned to New York City. Vertner Tandy the man who designed the salon would go off to war, was actually a lieutenant. So it's 1917 during World War One, and her business is booming, and she's now living with her daughter in New York City. Uh, meanwhile, more than 20,000 women were working around the country as agents selling her products and for these women, she organized local and regional clubs. She even held a convention for them in late August of 1917 in Philadelphia, which she called the Madam C.J. Walker Hair Culturalists Union of America Convention. 
It was held at Union Baptist Church in Philadelphia and attended by about 200 women who learned about sales techniques and marketing. They learned from each other and from her and from speakers. She would, of course, encourage attendees to be, you know, more successful business women, a point that Alelia Bundles underscored in her writings upon the 100th anniversary of the event in 2017. She wrote, quote, Margaret Thompson, president of the Philadelphia Union of Walker Hair Culturalists, told her colleagues that she had earned $5 a week as a servant. Now she claimed an income of $250 a week, the equivalent of more than $5,200 a week in 2017 dollars. Well, and we should also underscore something else here, something more profound about Madam Walker. She wasn't just about organizing these agents for profit, uh, but also for the betterment, as you mentioned, of the African-American community itself and to fight for political change. She gave prizes at the at the convention to these top performing agents like Margaret Thompson Uh, which isn't surprising at all, but she also awarded $500 prizes to chapters uh, that had raised the most money for charities. And in this case, in 1917, in reaction to the East St. Louis riot and lynching, she pushed them to apply political pressure uh, in Washington for passing anti-lynching laws. She, She encouraged attendees at the convention to send President Woodrow Wilson a telegram supporting this anti-lynching legislation. She explained to her attendees, quote, This is the greatest country under the sun, but we must not let our love of country, our patriotic loyalty, cause us to abate one whit in our protest against wrong and injustice. We should protest until the American sense of justice is so aroused that such affairs as the East St. Louis riot be forever impossible. And that year, she even traveled to the White House herself with other prominent African-American leaders, including Fred Moore, the publisher of The New York Age, to deliver a petition to the president in person. So she's really high profile at this at this oh, point. Yeah. I mean, she's bending the ear of the president about these national grave concerns. But back in New York, she's still living in New York, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And still living on 136th Street, still in where her salon and training school is? Yes, she is with her daughter. But shortly after arriving in the city, she had already started planning to build something truly spectacular uh, for her family and also for the community. She wanted to build an estate near the city to rival those of wealthy white men but one that would also be a symbol of African-American business accomplishment. So for this villa, she would choose the village of Irvington, or Irvington-on-Hudson, a short ride north of the city between Dobbs Ferry and Terrytown on the Hudson River. A town named for Washington Irving, since you mentioned Terrytown. C.P. Hollow's around the corner. Right, his estate was just a, a short walk from Madam Walker's home. She hired again... Architect Vertner Woodson Tandy, who you just mentioned, to design the home, which was a 34-room white stucco Italian Renaissance mansion with with grand white columns and a red-tiled roof, situated on more than four acres of land. And she named this Villa Luaro. Do you know who inspired that name, Tom? They were good. The family was good friends with the opera icon Enrico Caruso, who inspired the name. 
because it's actually an anagram of her daughter, Alelia's name. Trust me, if you write out Alelia Walker Robinson and just <laughs> underlined the, the first couple of letters sure. in each word, you wind up with Lawaro. So Villa Lawaro is Madame Walker's brand new sumptuous home. Yes, constructed between 1917 and 18, finished 100 years ago this year. It's fascinating. And it's actually kind of disturbing to read some of the press coverage of even the construction of her home because it was because this was news. It was being followed in the press because here we were, you know, a new grand family mansion that was being constructed very near the estates of the Rockefellers and Jay Gould. But the owner of this was not only a woman, but an African-American woman, according to these stories. How was that even possible? Here's an article from the New York Times published on November 4th, 1917, headline, Wealthiest Negro Woman Suburban Mansion. And the first couple of paragraphs are just about well, here, quote, impossible, they exclaim. No woman of her race could afford such a place. And it, it's just a kind of walk through at the beginning of the article, a walk through Irvington, talking to people who were just shaking their heads at the possibility that this beautiful, huge, lavish home could be constructed by an African-American woman. They're not impressed. The, you read these press reports and it's condescending and incredulous. The article does end up, you know, going through her entire life story, telling telling about how she built her remarkable company and how she gives away all this money to charity. But the framing, you know, and the, the, the intro is, I think, cringeworthy. Unfortunately, Madam C.J. Walker would not live very long in this home because she died the next year on May 25th, 1919. She died of hypertension and kidney failure, only 51 years old. A funeral was held at her home in Irvington, and her body was interred at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Madam C.J. Walker's beauty business and the Irvington estate would pass on to her daughter, Lelia. Now, Lelia had been in charge of large chunks of this business anyway, but she did have to kind of live with the specter of her mom, and, and many people didn't believe that she could fill her mother's shoes. However, it is at this point that the story takes a marvelous and unexpected twist, if you ask me. In the shadow of her philanthropist mother, with the spotlight on her, Lilia decides to kind of completely reinvent herself. So in 1922, she adds that A to the beginning of her name. So now she's Alelia Walker. Oh, so that happened four years after her mother passed away. Yeah. So it's almost like a new identity. She looks at her parlor here at 136th Street and her notoriety, and she decides to turn her influence towards the cultural and artistic lights of Harlem. She becomes a curator, an impresario of the Harlem Renaissance. As we had mentioned, with this concentration of African Americans from other parts of the city moving to Harlem, you also had people moving from areas of the southern United States as part of the Great Migration. They were also moving to Harlem. Harlem then became a magnet for great artistic talents people from all across the country. And it was here that they developed unique voices that represented the black experience in the United States. Alelia Walker 
would become, in effect, the hostess of the Harlem Renaissance. Wow. And and she would host um, here in the salon yeah. and in her family home in Harlem? Yeah. And at the villa and at another apartment she would later have on Edgecombe Avenue in Sugar Hill. <laughs> Greg so- <laughs> just hopped out of his chair. Um, be- she is befriending all the great literary artistic talents of the day she opens her home as a sort of literary salon so there is a hair salon downstairs <laughs> literally literally and then a literary salon upstairs a uh, literally <laughs> she would surround herself with such greats as langston hughes florence mills paul robeson carl van vechten county cullen dozens of more journalists dancers painters you name it And in 1927, it took on the name The Dark Tower, named for the poem and magazine column by frequent guest, County Cullen. This is so interesting because here her mother, Madam C.J. Walker, would hold meetings with many of these luminaries and her daughter would also hold gatherings, but they were parties. Yeah, the toasts of the Harlem cultural circuit were here attending some of the grandest parties of the Prohibition years. Oh, right. It's Prohibition. <laughs> yes. But, but I'm pretty sure there was some champagne aflowing somewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, she, in particular, was surrounded by gay men. She valued the company of men who have, would, of course, appreciate her glamorous lifestyle. She would, of course, tr- she would wear absolutely beautiful gowns, her hair often wrapped in a turban. Fabulous. She even popped up once or twice, I read, at some of these legendary Harlem balls, which were underground parties that were held in the 1920s where men often performed in drag. Mabel Hampton, who was a dancer during this period and became a lesbian activist later in life, was frequently at these parties. And she said, quote, There were men and women, women and women, and men and men, and everyone did what they wanted to do. So Walker was creating these spaces of acceptance as well. Langston Hughes called her the joy goddess of Harlem's 1920s. Now, from his autobiography, and I am so excited that I get to read from Langston Hughes' autobiography. He's one of my favorite writers. From 1940, he recounts a particular incident that happened down at the Edgecombe Avenue address that she owned. Quote, Alelia Walker had an apartment that held perhaps a hundred people. She would usually issue several hundred invitations to each party. Unless she went there early, there was no possible way of getting in. Her parties were as crowded as the New York subway at the rush hour. Entrance, lobby, steps, hallway, an apartment, a milling crush of guests, with everybody seeming to enjoy the crowding. Once, some royal personage arrived, a Scandinavian prince, But his aquary saw no way of getting him through the crowded entrance hall and into the party. So word was sent in to Alelia Walker that his highness, the prince, was waiting outside. Alelia sent word back that she saw no way of getting his highness in, either nor could she herself get out through the crowd to greet him. But she offered to send refreshments downstairs to the prince's car. What a hostess. Yeah, what a lady, right? Unfortunately, though, the good times in New York are over by 1929 and gravely affect Walker and her business. 
Of course, I'm referring to the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression, which follows. Would her salon and her company go out of business? The company would remain, although in a much more reduced scale. But her salon and home on 136th Street, well, that would eventually be sold to the city to become a health clinic. On August 17, 1931, Alelia Walker, this woman who had been full of life throughout the 1920s, collapsed at a friend's birthday party, and she died of a cerebral hemorrhage at age 46 years old. Her funeral, just like her mother's, was attended by thousands of people, by the leading lights of Harlem, just a few days later. Among the poignant eulogies and all the wonderful music that was performed by friends of Alilia, a music critic named Edward Perry stood and read a poem that was written by Langston Hughes about Alilia Walker. It's a very short poem. So all who love laughter and joy and light, let your prayers be as roses for this queen of the night. Both mother and daughter today are buried in Woodlawn Cemetery. Whatever happened to the Walker's home on 136th? Hard to believe this, g- given the extraordinary like historical significance of it. But in 1941, the city demolished the home on West 136th and replaced it with a branch of the New York Public Library. Today, it's called the County Cullen Branch of the New York Public Library, named for the poet who gave Walker's Salon its name. Today, the library is an extension of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. But Tom, whatever happened to the Villa Luaro? Well, the Villa Luaro, after her passing, was bequeathed to the NAACP, who in the Great Depression had also fallen on very hard times. They turned around and sold off the property. But for several decades now, it has been the residence of an ambassador, the ambassador and Mrs. Harold Dolly Jr. He served as the U.S. representative to the African Development Bank and Fund. Today, the property is for sale. But just about two weeks ago, the National Trust for Historic Preservation advanced plans to assist in the preservation of Villa Luaro in Irvington. And this new status gives it tax benefits in exchange for its historic preservation. So even Villa Luaro is still in the news. I mean, this just happened on December 22nd. It was already designated a National Historic Landmark in 1976, and this new designation by the National Trust for Historic Preservation will make it easier for the next owners of the property uh, to preserve it and to restore it. Meanwhile, Madam's name lives on uh, in several places in Indianapolis, including the Madam Walker Theater Center, which was created out of her former factory and offices and laboratory. And, Greg, did you see this? Octavia Spencer has signed on to act in a new TV series that will be produced by NBA star LeBron James based on the book by Alalia Bundles on her own ground. And I want to give a very, very, very strong shout-out for this book because I read this whole thing over the holiday. Alalia Bundles is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. And the great-granddaughter of of, of her namesake. Yeah. If only 
the descendants of iconic historic figures, if only they were all as talented as writers and historians as she is, we would all be in a wonderful place right now. This is a tremendous book. So it came out in 2001. um, But if you want more about the life of these two remarkable women, and you can't wait for the Octavia Spencer TV series, then grab yourself a copy of this book. We'll also have more clips from Alelia Bundles and others on our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We have an exciting announcement, listeners. Yes, we do. In a couple weeks, we'll be releasing a very special show that is a tie-in to the brand new TNT limited series, The Alienist. That debuts on January 22nd, 2018. Many of you are fans of that book. Uh, Many of you know that it takes place in the 1890s in a grim and gritty world of New York City history. So we have a little involvement with that, which we are very excited to share with you. A special tie-in show coinciding with the start of this new limited series on TNT. So that is in two weeks, but next week, ladies and gentlemen, is our 250th episode. So lots of big stuff happening here in January. You want to listen to all of it, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, we could not have done this episode today without the help and the support of our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Maybe you noticed we didn't stop the show and run an ad in the middle. We're only able to do shows like this because of your financial help. So if you can join us, we have all kinds of extras and little rewards and meetups and things for our patrons that are really fun. And it's becoming you know, a Bowery Boys community. Mm-hmm. It's really great to to get to know these patrons in the community. They have joined us. Why don't you at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. And thank you so much to the patrons who have joined already. And finally, check out the Bowery Boys spinoff show, The First, Stories of Inventions and Their Consequences. And I wanted to draw your attention to the last episode called The Lost Highway, about the origins of the Lincoln Highway, which was conceived of in 1912. Guess what? in what city, Tom? Indianapolis? Yes. So (sighs) while Madam Walker was setting up her business across town, the Lincoln Highway was born. Who knew we'd be spending so much time talking about Indianapolis? I think we're going to start a spinoff show about the history of Indianapolis. So on that note, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.